As we come to Judges chapter 17 in our survey through the book of Judges, we turn a corner in our study. Thus far, up through chapter 16, we've covered 350 years of history since the death of Joshua to where we are as we begin tonight's time. We've seen 13 out of 13 judges. There have been 12 men and one woman that have been raised up over the span of that time to be deliverers or heroes to help God's people to overcome the various difficulties, imprisonments, enslavements, and bondages that they have faced throughout the past years. The nation at this point has gone through seven sin cycles. And if you've been with us in our studies, you know exactly what I mean by that. A season of closeness to the Lord that's then followed by rebellion from the Lord, apostasy, which is then followed by bondage and enslavement to their enemies, which is then followed by the people of God crying out to the Lord with repentance for deliverance, which is then followed by God raising up a judge or deliverer to bring the people back into a right relationship with himself. And then they walk with the Lord for a while, and then the cycle repeats itself. And they've gone through this seven times thus far in the study. And the common phrase that has defined the book of Judges up till this time has been, the children of evil did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's been the common denominator in the spiritual life of Israel through this entire period of time. But now... As we come into chapter 17, we no longer see any more judges. The rest of the book is more or less an epilogue. It's a series of two snapshots or pictures that are described through stories or narratives that give to us really an illustration of the apostate spiritual climate of the people of God during those days. Just random instances, things that happened, that helped define for us what the relationship between the people of God and the God of the people was during that time. Now, there's a new common phrase that's going to mark these last five chapters of Judges. It's not going to be, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord any longer. The new phrase is this, that there was no king in Israel And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, if you take 10 steps back and think about it, both of those two defining statements are saying the same thing. They did evil in the sight of the Lord for the first 16 chapters, and they did what was right in their own eyes for the last five chapters. But it's really the same statement. Because to do what's right in our own eyes without regard to what God says, is to do evil in the sight of the Lord. One of those things is from heaven's perspective, it's evil. And the other one is from earth's perspective, it's right. Jesus, when he was talking to the religious Pharisees, indicted them on this very charge of just doing whatever they thought was right. And he said it this way in Luke chapter 16, verse 15. He said, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so oftentimes that's just the case. That when people, that is humans, do what's right in our eyes, we have a relativistic view of right and wrong. My right is right for me and your right is right for you and everybody just does what they think is right. So often 
from heaven's perspective, it's an abomination in the sight of God. Because we don't measure ourselves with ourselves. We measure ourselves according to the standard of God's word. And so they did what was right in their own eyes. Now, the first of these two snapshots is in chapters 17 and 18. And then the second is in the last three, uh, 19 through 21. And so tonight we'll look at the first of these. Now, this segment... These two chapters, 17 and 18, really involve three players. There are three groups or people in this thing that each speak to us. First of all, there is a man. His name is Micah, and he's a man who's going to start his own religion. The second character is a Levite, another man, but he represents the ministry. And he signs on and he becomes a priest in Micah's religion. And then the third character is a tribe. It's the tribe of Dan, one of the 12 families of Israel. And they are unhappy with their place, their situation within the land. And so they're going to migrate to a whole new region, kill everyone that's there, take their land. And along the way, they're going to steal Micah's religion and his priest to take with them. And so it's an incredible story. I know you're getting more excited with each passing moment as you uh, start to see what's in front of us tonight. But each one of these three characters represent spiritual life on their respective level. First of all, Micah. He represents the spiritual temperature, if you would, of the individual. What it was like for each individual person during this season. The Levite represents the mindset of the ministry. Those that were serving God and his people during that time. And the tribe of Dan that we'll see in chapter 18, they represent the general condition of the nation. What was the sentiment or the affection level of the people toward their God during that time? One more remark before we get into the text, and that's this. The story of Judges has been for us what happens when one nation under God, that was supposed to be them, turns their back on God. And tonight and next week, as we finish this off, we see the outcome of that situation. The ultimate destiny of a nation that turns its back on God. And the answer is confusion and destruction. And so we get into the text. We begin with the first of these three characters. We see the man, Micah, chapter 17, verse 1. It says this. It says, now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. Micah means Who is like the Lord or who is like Jehovah? So a spiritual name, perhaps parents wanting a spiritual wish upon their son. It says, and he said to his mother, the 1100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me. I took it. And his mother said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver, by the way, that's an enormous sum of money. We're going to find out in just a few verses that 10 shekels of silver is a decent yearly wage. 10 shekels of silver for a year. So 1,100 shekels of silver is 110 years of wages. By today's estimates, it's about 4.5 to $5 million in value. This man, Micah, steals it from his own mother, But then, because of a curse that he hears her place upon the thief, he returns it because of a superstitious fear that the curse will come upon him. And her response to it is, bless you, my son. No correction, no rebuke. 
So, verse 3, when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord. That's Yahweh, the Lord, God, for my son, and here's why, to make a carved image and a molded image. Violation of the commandment. You shall have no graven image, anything in the likeness of anything that is in heaven or on the earth that would represent the Lord. Now, therefore, she says, I will return it to you. So thank you, son, for returning this four and a half million dollars to me. Now I'm going to give it to you so that we can make idols in the name of Jehovah. Thus, verse 4, he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels. Wait, didn't she just say I had wholly dedicated it to the Lord? 200 shekels of silver, and she gave them to the silversmith, and he made it into a carved image and a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, a shrine uh, it speaks of a house of idols. So this is a little tiny church now, and I, th- I don't think it's a little tiny church because we're going to find out that everyone in Israel knows about it and knows where it is. And it says that he made an ephod, an ephod was a garment that was to be only worn by the high priest, a man chosen of God, specifically to be a descendant of Aaron, chosen by God for that ministry, but an ephod he makes, and it says, and household idols. In the King James and the Hebrew, it says teraphim, which basically are small idols that would be used to divine. Basically, this is like fortune-telling, discerning the the will of God, kind of like the magic eight ball. Lord, does she like me? And then you look at it, Maybe. Oh, and then you say, you know, and, and this is same kind of thing is, is what's going on here with the teraphim, just things to divine the will of God. And then it says there that he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, what we see right here is we see at least six of the Ten Commandments being broken. We see theft. We see a man who's not honoring his father and his mother. We see lying on a couple of occasions on a few levels. We see hypocrisy. We see idolatry. And we see the name of the Lord being taken in vain. And all of this, six out of ten commandments, being clearly and blatantly broken, all being done in the name of Jehovah, in the name of the Lord. We're told that there's a shrine, a house, a garment Uh, made for the priest, teraphim to divine, uh, divine, and the consecration of one of this man's sons, of all people, to uphold the place of a priest. So what's going on here in this text? Here's the answer. Is that Micah and his mom are starting their own religion. The word religion comes from a Latin word that means to relink. And the idea behind religion is for fallen man to find a way to be restored into fellowship with a holy God or with their creator. And that's what religion always does. It's man's effort to try to restore himself into God's good graces. That's what religion is. There's a drive that exists within all people. And that drive is to seek and to search out their creator and to be in a right relationship with him. Everyone has that drive. No matter what they call themselves, whether they say they're agnostic or atheist or pantheist or whatever it might be that they might subscribe to, 
There is a drive within every one of us that wants to think or know that we are right or at peace with our Creator. There is also, at the same time within us, an opposing drive. And that drive makes us self-sufficient, self-reliant, and self-righteous. That is to think that what we are right now is okay. So we want to be right with God, but we also want to be what we are and do what we want. And those two things exist at the same time. Now when those two drives are out of harmony, that is my desire to be right with God and my desire to do whatever I want. When there's a lack of harmony in those two things, it produces within a human, within us, a feeling of guilt. The check engine light goes on. We feel like something's not right, and so it causes us to be unsettled to search for something. And so the typical response to resolve that conflict that's going on internally is to find something that quiets the cry of a violated and unforgiven conscience but doesn't violate the will of the self-drive. And that's what we see taking place here in this thing. And so someone that feels that way will deceive themselves into a quiet conscience. They'll either find a belief that lets them ease their conscience and their standing before God and allows them to do what they want, or they'll just simply make one up. They'll make up a religion that does that. And so here we have Micah and his mom starting this religion, and here's what they do. They incorporate elements of God's word, and then elements of pagan practices, and elements of self-expression, so as to make it original to them. And they make a new religion. And if you were to ask them the basis for this thing, they would say something like this. They would say, well, we follow God, yes. The God of the Bible, even, but we do it in our own way. They would say, we don't agree with the narrowness of Moses' instruction, but God accepts us where we are and with what we do. They would say, we chew the meat, but we spit out the bones. Besides, we're sincere in what we do and sacrificial. We prove it by the money that we give, the effort that we push towards these things. We're sincere and we're way better than other people. And what they're doing right now is called syncretism. It's taking elements of whatever they want, whatever they like, repackaging it along with the branding of God's way and making a religion that blends all of those things. Syncretism. Now here's Micah's problems. Here's the problem with what he's doing. Number one is that he has no regard whatsoever for God's word. The Bible tells us that we were created in God's image, in his likeness. That he's the one that formed us And therefore, he's the one that tells us, first of all, what we are, but second of all, who he is. He tells us, we don't tell him. But what religion always seeks to do is turn that around. And instead of God making man in his image, man creates God in man's image. We make him what we want him to be. That's exactly what Mike is doing. Jesus said that the Father is looking for those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. To worship God in truth means that you're worshiping him according to the way that he has prescribed, what he has set forth in the word. Believing in God as he represents himself and not what we desire him to be based upon what we want to do or want to practice. Jesus was talking one day to a group of Sadducees and they asked him a question. They poised this situation before him where a man took a wife and before they could have a child, the man died 
And the brother then was given the woman. And then he died before they had children. And seven of, of the same family, these brothers, all had this woman to wife, they said. Really, in reality, she had them. <laughs> you know, they didn't have her. She had them, you know. But all seven of them died, and none of them had children. And they said, okay, Jesus, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And it says, this said they to tempt him because the Sadducees didn't believe that there was any kind of a resurrection. And here was Jesus' response to that. He said, you do err because you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. And any time a person ascribes or subscribes to any form of religion that God has not spoken forth in his word, they do err because they don't know the scriptures. And that's what we see happening here. Second Thessalonians says that deception is the root of what happens when someone doesn't love the truth. If you don't love the truth, then you're going to set yourself up for deception. That's Micah's first problem. His second problem is this, is that he's influenced by the world. In today's society, we would call him worldly. But in his society, they would call him Canaanized. That is that he took some elements from what he had culturally and traditionally, other elements of what he was exposed to in Canaan culturally, and then he mashed the two together and he made a new religion. Now here's the third problem and the biggest problem with this all is that God is not in this at all. Though his name is being used, though appearances and titles are in place, God is completely outside of this 100%. He doesn't accept it at all. Now the root of it, as we see there in verse uh, 6 at the end of the section, is that it came from a, a place of moral relativism, that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so, uh, you know, blurring the lines of truth, making it relative to the individual. And, and this represents for us, as we look at this segment, this snapshot, what was going on in the hearts of the individuals in Israel during those days. They were creating a God after their own image. And this was the general sentiment uh, in, in the people. The second part, or the second person that we meet now is the Levite. If you look back with me at verse 7. It says, now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, and he was a Levite, and he was staying there. Now you recall that the Levites did not have an official inheritance in the land. There was no tribe of Levi that had borders and cities that were called theirs. The Levites were the servants of the tabernacle and the priests for the people, and so they would be dispersed throughout all of the tribes. And so this particular Levite, he lived in Bethlehem, the Bethlehem that was in Judea. There was another Bethlehem in another part, but he makes the distinction here that it was the Bethlehem that was in Judah. And it says in verse 8 that the man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. So apparently he wants work. He's looking to make a name for himself. And so he comes to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? So he said to him, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm on my way to find a place to stay. So Micah said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you 10 shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance, your food. So the Levite went in. Then the Levite was content to dwell with the man and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest. 
and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as a priest. What do we have here? We have a man who wants to be in ministry, might even be called to be in ministry, but it's for all the wrong reasons. A priest, by Old Testament standards, was a man who was to be set apart, and his role was twofold. A priest was to stand in the gap. He was to be a representation of God to the people and a voice for the people to God, an intercessor. Now, in the New Testament, there's no such thing as a priesthood any longer. When Jesus died on the cross, his last words were, It is finished. With those words, giving up the ghost, the Bible says that the veil that was in the temple that separated the people from the holy place where God's presence was, that veil was torn in half from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. Signifying that through the death of Christ, God had opened the way and given free access for any that would come in Jesus' name to come into his presence freely. Therefore, there's no longer a need for a priesthood. Jesus is the only priest that still exists. He stands on our behalf for God, and he speaks to us or makes place for us before God through what he did. So there's no more priesthood. We can go to God ourselves. We can talk to God anytime we want. We don't need someone to pray for us, and we don't you know, have to go to someone in order to go to God. We can go directly to God if we are, in fact, in Christ. So there's no more priesthood, but this man was a priest. Now, the Old Testament priest was supposed to be strong in relationship with God. If he was going to be a counselor or a help to people in their walk with God, then he himself would have to be in fellowship with God. They would also have to be sensitive to the needs of people. That was the wisdom of God during those days, to make the representatives people themselves, so that they would be sensitive to people's needs. Now we see this man here. He is a Levite, and therefore he is qualified to be a priest. However, you had to be a direct descendant of Aaron, and this man is not, as we will learn at the end of chapter 18. In order to be a high priest... And only the high priest was allowed to wear the ephod or offer those sacrifices or do that work of personal up-close ministry. This man was not qualified to do those things, and yet we see that he's going to do those things. So what do we find out about this man? We find out that he is looking for a financially stable position. He wants to know what he can be reputably And he wants to have influence over people authoritatively. That's what's going on inside the heart of this Levite, this would-be minister. So here's what we're going to find out about this man. He has absolutely no relationship with God at all whatsoever. None. No connection with God at all. He also has no regard for the word of God or the ways of God. He always wanted to wear an ephod and speak into people's lives. So a few idols and shrines are not enough to keep him from getting what he wants. We also find that he has no regard for people. He's going to give counsel that is clearly and directly outside of the will of God and that's going to lead to bloodshed, tyranny, and ruin. And he's in it as long as he keeps getting paid. We're going to find out that this man's commitment is about as deep as a dollar. He'll go wherever the situation is best for him and he'll do whatever it takes to increase the size and reputation of the church. If people like idols, bring in idols. If they like ephods, bring in ephods. 
If people don't want to hear about sin, then don't tell them about sin. And here's his motto. Be friends with everyone. Don't offend anyone. Preach to your audience and keep things positive. That's what's going on in the heart of this Levite, as we will see as the story unfolds. The application of this is clear. as We consider what the Apostle Paul said to the elders at Ephesus the last time that he was with them. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, Paul said this. He said, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Mark that in your mind, because it's such a key element. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul says, watch out for this, church. That there is a breed of would-be ministers that will rise up so slick, so sly in their presentation, so able to say the right things and to appear and play the part that even those that are disciples of Jesus Christ will fall for what they say. And their motive, their desire, their drive is to draw people after themselves. Paul warned them with tears that this would happen. It would be a real present danger in the church. And isn't it amazing what we see happening in the very days that we live in? We see people that claim to be ministers, that wear the title and the badge, that play the part in the pulpit, but they have no relationship with God whatsoever. They have no fear or respect for His Word and the keeping of His Word. They have no real desire to serve people. They'll tell people whatever they want to hear. They'll give whatever counsel is going to be the most popular, the most easy to bear, not caring at all for the eternal state of the souls. And no matter what that counsel is going to bring that person to down the road, they don't care about that at all. They'll say whatever is going to bring people into the church, what's going to expand their reputation, what's going to make the finances the biggest that it can be, and that's their goal and their aim, to make a reputation and a name and to keep things growing. And so this was the attitude of the ministry in the days of the judges. Now here's the amazing thing, is that this church that Micah builds is going to become so famous and so big that it would be on the cover of every Israeli periodical and magazine and it would be the highlight of every spiritual feature because of the the amount of people that it's drawing, what it's doing, the name that it has. Everyone is going to know about this place. But here's the problem with it. God's not in it. Not at all. He's not in it at all. How does Micah respond now that he's got his own Levite? He says, now I know that God will bless me, seeing that I have a Levite as priest. God's not in this. Not at all. Third character that we meet now is a discontented tribe, chapter 18. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day, their inheritance among the tribes of Israel had not fallen to them. Now, that is not true. You'll see a map go up on the screen right now of the plot of land that was inhabited by Dan 
in the early days of their existence in the land. If you look and you see, um, you'll see the east and west Manasseh, the big yellow blurbs, and then just under that, you'll see Gad and Ephraim, and then just to the left of Ephraim, you'll see Dan right there. Now, that is a small plot of land, but that was not God's fault. It was their fault. If you recall, they were commanded to go in and dispossess those that were in the land, and take the territory that was allotted to them. Now, Dan didn't do it. They were supposed to have the strip of land that went all the way down the coast of the Mediterranean. It was a great plot of land, but it was held by the Philistines. And yes, they were a tough enemy. But be that as it may, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself They had that land right there. It was given to them, but they were discontent with it. The enemy was too strong for them, and so they wanted to move uh, 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 somewhere else. And so it says, um, here's what they're going to do in verse 2. It says, so the children of Dan sent five men of their family from their territory, men of valor from Zorah and Eshtaol, to spy out the land and search it. And they said to them, go search the land. So they went to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And lodged there. Wow, this is a a famous place. The plot thickens. And while they, these five delegates from Dan, were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So apparently he was on the radio all throughout Israel. People, they knew who he was. He was famous. They had heard, hey, we know that voice. That's that voice from that radio program. I wonder if he looks like what I thought, what I pictured in my mind when I heard him all those times, you know. And so they turned aside and they said to him, who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? Great questions. And what do you have here? And so he said to them, thus and so Micah did for me. He has hired me and I have become his priest. So they said to him, oh, please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. Oh, please pray for us. Would you please, you're a priest, you're wearing an ephod, you have a voice before God, pray for us and then counsel us and let us know if we are in the will of God in this journey that we're about to go on. Now, they are not in the will of God, but watch what happens. Verse uh, 6, and so the priest said to them, go in peace. The presence of the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, be with you on your way. So the five men departed and they went to Laish, And they saw the people who were there, how they dwelt safely in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. There were no rulers in the land, so there's no government who might put them to shame for anything. They were far from the Sidonians. They were blocked in by the Lemedes mountain range, and they had no ties with anyone. Now, if you look at the the next map, you'll see where Laish is. You'll see, you know, an arrow that goes from the portion of Dan where they were and it goes all the way up to the most northern part point that you can see up on your map right there that's the area where Dan is going to migrate and that city of Laish is way up there on the Sidonian border but then the Lebanese mountains would be you know just north of that keeping them from uh, you know the, the influence of the Sidonians that were there now that land is extremely precious and valuable land Dan is one of the most beautiful areas of Israel uh, that, that exists. I mean, the soil that's there, there's a spring in Dan. It's called the Spring of Dan. And, and, and it produces one-fourth of all the water that, that makes up the Jordan River. 
I mean, the thing we, I saw it that you'll see a picture of it up there on the screen. And the thing is like the Niagara river. I mean, it produces something like 640 gallons of water per second. I mean, and that's what the tour guide told us when I Googled it, it said like it was more like 2000. Either way, it's a lot of water. And, and that water makes that land extremely fertile. It's extremely prolific. It's a good land. Whoever would be there would be very self-sustaining and self-sufficient. And that's exactly what Dan was looking for. And so Dan, now they go up there. These guys, they see this plot of land uh, that's up there. It's very beautiful. It's fertile. It's got great overlooks and all. And so, oh, they get real excited. It's in verse 8. It says this. It says, that, then the spies, they came back to their brethren at Zorah and Eshtual, back down in the south. And their brethren said to them, What is your report? So they said, Arise, let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and indeed it is very good. Would you do nothing? Do not hesitate to go and enter to possess the land. And when you go, you will come to a secure people in a large land, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. So notice that they bring now the name of God into this thing as well. God has given it to you, and there's no lack for anything that you will ever need. Your problems will be over. The discontentment that you've been feeling, the strain of having a lack of space, the difficulty with your taxes and your finances, all of that will be over forever. God is opening the door for you to go to a completely different place than where you are, and all of your problems will be solved. Would you do nothing, they said? So verse 11, and so 600 men of the family of the Danites went from there, from Zorah and Eshtael, armed with weapons of war. And then they went up and they encamped in Kirjath-Jerim in Judah. Therefore, they call that place Mahanadan to this day. There it is, west of Kirjath-Jerim. And they passed from there to the mountains of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Everybody loves this place. So then the five men who had gone to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their brethren, now watch this, do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, household idols, a carved image, and a molded image? Now therefore, consider what you should do. So these five men that went to the priest and sought his blessing and were prayed for, they were so impressed by the operation, now they come with the whole tribe and they say, hey, there's about 1,100 shekels worth of religion up here, and it would make a real good thing for us up in Dan. Be real careful what you do right now. They got the point. So it says, verse 15, so they turned aside there, and they came to the house of the young Levite man, to the house of Micah, and greeted him. The 600 men, armed with their weapons of war, who were of the children of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Then the five men who had gone up to spy out went up entering there. They took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image. The priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men who were armed with the weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household idols, and the molded image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, be quiet and put your hand over your mouth. The idea is, hush, hush, and come with us. Be a father and a priest to us. It is better for you to be a priest to, to or, I'm sorry, is it better for you to be a priest to the household of one man or that you be a priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? Hey, consider wisely what you do, young Levite. Do you want to be the priest of this small little family household church here? 
a little radio program, everybody here, or you could be the pastor of a megachurch. You could have the whole tribe of Dan. One-twelfth of all the nation would be considered yours. You would be one of the 12 biggest churches in the whole country. If you'll just leave and you'll just come with us up where we're going, consider what you'll do. Now, love this. Watch verse 20. This is a true shepherd right here. So the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod, the household idols, and the carved image. He goes, give me that stuff. I'll carry it. And he took his place among the people. So then they turned and they departed. And they put the little ones, the livestock, and the goods in front of them. And when they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house gathered together and overtook the children of Dan. And they called out to the children of Dan. So they turned around and they said to Micah, What ails you that you've gathered such a company? So he said, You have taken away my gods which I have made. Now, I hope you hear that. Listen, if someone can take away your God, you're serving the wrong God. Okay? If you need to protect the God that you're serving, then you've got the wrong thing because your God should be able to protect you. What are you serving here tonight? Who do you serve? Where do you put your trust? What has the affection and the bulk of your time and your energy and your thought? Can it protect you or do you have to protect it? That's a real good question because the day will come when that will be put to the test. You've taken away my gods, which I made. And they were the gods which he made because they weren't the God that made him. And the priest, and you have gone away. Now what more do I have? How can you say to me, what ails you? And the children of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry men fall upon you and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the children of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. Now I know that there's someone who's going to ask the question that we posed earlier in the study when we talked about Micah creating his own religion and following his own way, and taking the best of everything he could find and melding it into a pot and making his own religion. And someone's going to ask the question and say, what's so wrong with that? The answer is this. Eventually, it all falls down. And what does it leave you with? See, only the true and the living God can really make you stand. The false ways that we make, the superstitions that we have, the trust that we put in our good works, or in our good deeds, or in our alms, as Jesus called them, None of those things have the strength to make a stand. And when the day of evil comes, Jesus said it this way. He says, those that hear my sayings but don't do them are like someone who built their house upon sand. The storms are going to come. The day will come when it will all be tested. And if it's built on sand, it's going to fall down. But those that do my sayings, that hear the word of God and keep it, they are those that built their house upon a rock. And when those storms come, you can't shake it because it's founded in heaven. Where is your house built right now? Is it built upon the rock? That is, are you doing and hearing what Jesus said? Maybe you're hearing what he said, but mixing what he said with a bunch of other opinions and building your life there. It can't stand. That's why it matters. Micah goes home here empty-handed. That 1,100 shekels of silver that was so important to him when he stole it from his mother, and then that was dedicated to him, and then part of it used to make an idol, all of it now is completely gone. Four and a half to five million dollars gone and he can do absolutely nothing about it so they took the things micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him 
And they went to Laish, to a people quiet and secure. And they struck them with the edge of the sword, and they burned the city with fire. And so now they take out every one of these people that are just dwelling there, not bothering anybody else. And in the name of God, they destroy a whole society and they completely take over their land. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on this verse at some point in his life. It was called The Danger of Carnal Security. And the points that he made in that is that these people that were here, this little Sidonian village of Laish, they were a people that were free of internal struggles and conflicts. They were free of rulers such as governors, governors of conscience and the like. They were free of ties and concerns to other people. And they were free from fear of invasion. The way he applied that sermon is that there's a whole colony of people in the world that live this way today. They have no allegiance to the God of Israel or to any God. They just kind of live financially independent of everyone else. They're autonomous in their own world. They're not bound by the restrictions of conscience. They kind of do what they want. Everything seems to work out for them. And they're an anomaly to the Christian person who looks in and says, why is it that they prosper and thrive while we, who are God's people, struggle? And the answer to that question is the day will come when their house will fall. Psalm 73 was written by a man named Asaph, and he was going through that struggle. He said, God, why do the heathen that deny your name and curse you, why do they prosper while the people of God constantly suffer and live in disarray? And he said, it almost made me slip and stumble until I considered their end. Surely, he said, they are in a slippery place, but you've set us in a good place. These people thought they had it all together. They ultimately will fall. Verse 29, it says, So they called the name of the city Dan after the name of Dan, their father, who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh. So now we find out who this Levite is. His name was Jonathan. and We find out that he was a descendant of Moses. And his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which he made. And we'll pause there. Uh, We'll we'll come back to that, the end of that verse at the end of our Bible study here. And we're getting there. But um, for, for one minute, what's going on with this tribe? What are the problems with what these people are? What is this picture here that's been put before us with this discontented tribe that wants to move uh, up? And here's what we have here. We have a group of people that are called by the name of God that would rather remove themselves from the will of God and the place that God has for them than to deal with the difficult task that's in front of them. Now, it's true that the Philistines were a tough enemy. We've seen that as we've gone through here up to this point in the book of Judges. We see that their chariots, their iron chariots, were stronger than Israel's armies. And that was a fact. We've seen that their giants were stronger than Israel's men. And that was true, they were. We've seen that their women were stronger than Israel's Samson. And that's true. You know, it could very well be that Samson was the man that God had ordained to remove the yoke of Philistine rule within this tribal people of Dan, but he failed because of his uh, carnal tendencies and what ultimately took place with Delilah. But although they were stronger than Israel's armies, Israel's men, and Israel's Samson, they were not stronger than Israel's God. And God had purposely put the people of Dan in that place because he knew that they needed to be close to Shiloh and later Jerusalem where the tabernacle and the temple would be established. 
He knew the tendency of those people and that they needed to be in the place that he had put them because they were close to the Lord there and close to accountability. And that would be the place where they would ultimately thrive spiritually and find their fullness in the things of God. He also knew that that people, the people of Dan, would need a battle that would be so tough that they would have to look to God for victory, that they wouldn't be able to get the victory in and of themselves. So what's the application of this people that would rather remove themselves from the will of God than to stand in and fight in the place that God has them? The Bible says that God knows the plans that he has for us, for you. The Bible says that he has a plan for you, an ultimate destination of where he's taking you. The Bible says that he is good. and The Bible says that he knows exactly what we need. The Bible says that you and I are living stones, that we are being formed, fitted, and fashioned to occupy a place in God's eternal house. And he knows exactly what he's doing as he's shaping us to make us fit into that place. And here's the point, is that the difficulties that we face, the strength of our enemies, the battles that we have, the struggles, the things that make us cringe in life and make us want to run away, all of those things are part of God's plan to make us what we're supposed to be so that we can be who we're supposed to be. But at any given time, we have the choice to either stand in and allow God to do his work in changing and shaping us, or we can say, you know what, I would rather live a life where I can have peace, where I can have just the things that I need, where I don't have to deal with any of this struggle, where I don't have to constantly wait upon God, but where I can just be self-sufficient and live a quiet life and be secure. And that just sounds so much better to me than the things that I'm going with right now. And that's exactly what we see happening with this tribe. And it happens with us today. I don't like this marriage, God. I don't like what this spouse is doing to my psyche. It's driving me crazy. I want out. God, I hate this job. I hate this boss. I hate the situation and the circumstance. I hate the intensity. I hate the hours. I'm sick of being tired. I'm, Lord, I just want out. I want to get out of it. I hate this region, especially in January. <laughs> I want out. I just want to get out. But the question is, do you want to be in the will of God or do you want to be in the will of you? And which of those places is better and which one of those places is safer? Well, if God knows the plans that he has and they're for peace and not for evil, then how much better is it for you and I to stand in the will of God, even though perhaps for a season it's hard, while we wait for him to give us the deliverance or the victory or whatever it is that we need so that we can be what he's made us to be. Here's what happens next, the second problem with this thing. Not only would they rather remove themselves from the will of God than stay in it, but here, here's number two, is that God let them go. God let them go. One of the most awesome and yet fearful privileges that every one of us has is a free will. And God won't violate it. The problem is that we're really bad at seeing the future. I don't know about you, but I know I am. We are really bad at seeing what's going to happen to us tomorrow. But God says that he's willing to direct our steps and to make sure that we're in the right place at the right time. But our part in that is that we have to stay in his will and in his leading for our lives. Here's number three, third problem with this thing, is that once they stepped out of the will of God, now they have to find a belief that's going to allow their behavior. And they found it. And here's the truth of the matter is that you always will. That when you want to step outside of the will of God and go your own way in your life, you will find something in the name of God that will allow you to do it and will justify your place and make your conscience feel at ease. 
It's exactly what they do. They go to a place, they find a religion on their way to their new place, and they steal it. They say, hey, this is great. There's an ephod, there's a priest, there's, there's teraphim. We can go up there, we'll set up shop, we have a spring. We don't have to pray for rain. We can just do this religious thing with Micah and his priest, and we'll be all set. We'll be totally set in all isolation. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 says this. It's speaking of the last days and the conditions of things. Um, it says, it's actually uh, in, in verse, I'm in the wrong verse. Oh, that's because I'm in 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, it says this. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And listen, if you want to step outside of the will of God, you're going to find a thousand teachers, preachers, pastors, and books that will justify what you want to do and make you feel completely at ease about doing it. But here's the cost. Here's where it ended for them. Is that they never enjoyed God's blessing or God's presence again as a tribe collectively. They got exactly what they wanted. They were completely self-sufficient. They had plenty of food, they had plenty of wealth, they had ease, they had peace, and they had territory. They had everything they wanted, but they traded God to get it. Because they became synonymous with idolatry. As it says right there at the end of the text, it says that they stayed up there with Micah's image and Micah's idols until the day that they went into captivity. The presence of God did not go with them where they were going. And they traded the most precious and valuable thing they had for a bit of temporary rest and relaxation. And it cost them for the rest of their lives the most valuable thing that they could have. And that's what happens when you step outside the will of God. Is that you might get the thing that you're seeking after. But if you lose the presence and the peace of God. I'm not saying you lose your salvation. But I am saying that you're going to make your life miserable. Ultimately. Because you're going to forsake the one thing that can actually bless you. And that is God. So what's the summation of everything that we see here in these two chapters tonight? We see that individuals in those days were creating their own religion, taking whatever elements they wanted and leaving out the rest. Enough to appease the conscience, but without changing their carnal, fleshly lifestyle. We see that in the ministry, the ministers were doing whatever they had to do to fill the churches, maintain their popularity, ensure a hefty offering, and keep their reputation growing. And we see that the sentiment among the people, generically, is that they didn't care whether they were in the will of God or not, believing the word of God or not, enjoying the presence of God or not. It was all about the here and now. But the saddest part of this whole situation is the last phrase at the end of verse 31 right there. It says, And all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. Indicating, first of all, that God was not a part of any of what was taking place throughout the rest of the nation. But also indicating, listen, that at any moment, at any time, any person that wanted to come, God was yet available to them. There was an altar in Shiloh upon which the blood of which would cleanse the coming sinner. There was a priest after the order of Aaron that would be able to intercede for the people and give true spiritual counsel to the people. In Shiloh, there was a mercy seat where God said he would meet with whoever would come, where he would talk to them, where he would counsel them and give them what they needed, where he could be known and accessed. 
In this world that we live in today, there's so much that's done in the name of God that God has absolutely no part in at all. It's done in his name. There's crosses on it. There's doves on it. There's Bibles attached to it. There's verses and phrases. But God is not a part of that. He's not in it. Because the mark of something isn't what it's called. It's where it stands. Does it stand upon Jesus, upon the blood, and upon the cross? Or does it stand in humanism, in giving a person what they want, what they need, and helping people, caring about people? That's good. God does that. But it's not what the church stands upon. The church stands upon the cross, the blood, and the word. That's where the church stands. And it's not just the cross generically. It's the cross of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who paid the price for sin. And it's upon those terms that God accepts the coming worshiper. And what God is saying to us here is that that was there in those days, but the people wanted nothing to do with it. Ravi Zacharias, I'll close with this um, I'll close with this little story. It says that Ravi Zacharias, the worship team can come. It says that he told about doing a lecture several years ago at the Ohio State University. As he was being driven to the lecture, it says that they passed what was then the new Wexner Art Center. The driver commented, this is a new art building for the university. It is a fascinating building designed in the postmodernist view of reality. Zechariah described this fascinating building. He said, the building has no pattern. Staircases go nowhere. Pillars support nothing. The architect designed the building to reflect the postmodernist view of life. It went nowhere and was mindless and senseless. Zechariah said, I turned to the man describing it and I asked, did they do the same thing with the foundation? And the man laughed and answered, you can't do that with the foundation. And it's true in that instance, but it's also true in our lives spiritually. Jesus said there was one foundation, one thing that would stand. He said that to build that foundation into your life is to hear the word of God and to keep it and do it. To simply hear it, to simply profess it, to simply own it, but not live it is to build and live upon a shaky foundation. Your house, your life, will soon and shortly become the leaning tower of Pisa. It will move degree by degree, year by year, and slowly bend over to a point where finally it will topple and fall. Because the only thing whereupon a life can stand is upon Jesus Christ, His cross, His blood, and His word. May God give us wisdom in the days that we live in that so closely reflect what we see happening in these days here. One word of encouragement at this end of this heavy study. Hey, these days here in Judges, we're just prior to the establishment of the kingdom. And I believe there's truth in that for us today too as we live in these most confusing times. I believe we're right on the cusp of God setting up his kingdom, the return of the king. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for what you said to us tonight. We would ask that you would continue to press these things upon us as we go into the night and into tomorrow. We pray, Father, that you would keep us on the straight path that leads to life. That your will would be more precious to us than our own comfort. That your word and your ways would be our safety and our banner. And we would love you with all of our heart, mind, and strength. Father, we pray that these things would search us. That they would uphold us, Lord. That we wouldn't turn to the right hand or to the left. So help us, Father, we pray. And be magnified in the lives of your people. We thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together.